It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to this edition of World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman and today we're looking at the outcome of the US midterm elections. With me in the studio is Jeff Dyer, our former correspondent in the US, and on the line from Washington, the FT's James Politi. Jeff, a lot of the commentary on the election says both sides have some reason for satisfaction. The Democrats won the House, the Republicans strengthened in the Senate. Do you share that view? Well, certainly as we were watching it at the time unfold, it seemed like a mixed bag. The Democrats won the House, but the Republicans made some quite important gains in the Senate. But in the cold light of day, it seems to me that actually it's quite a significant victory for the Democrats. I mean, just look at the numbers. There was really only one national race, and that was for the House. And it does seem as if the Democrats won that in terms of the popular vote by 9%. That is a huge victory by any historic terms. That's essentially a blowout. That's the one kind of concrete measure we have of political temperature in the US, and that suggests the Democrats did very well. And by winning the House, they've won subpoena power. They've got the gavel. So they are now able to hold hearings and subpoena witnesses and documents and start holding the Trump administration to account for some of the things they've been doing that have really got away with for the last two years. That's also very important. And then the one final thing, I think, to look at the industrial Midwest, the kind of Rust Belt states. In 2016, the big surprise that Trump pulled off was he broke through the so-called blue wall. He won states like Michigan and Pennsylvania. He won Ohio and they won Wisconsin. The Democrats won Michigan, they won Pennsylvania, they won Wisconsin, and they won the Senate race in Ohio, they lost the governor's race. So the Democrats did very well in those states that are are likely to be the central battleground of the Electoral College in 2020. So I think in the cold light of day, I'd say it's a much better day for the Democrats than it is for the Republicans, and certainly it is for the Trump White House. James, do you share that assessment? I partially shared that assessment. I think that the Democratic gains in the suburbs are very significant because they show that Trump is losing steam among women, among more affluent voters, and in part of the core of the more moderate conservative Republican vote. And I think that's a pretty important backlash, which will be reassuring to the Democrats. But then if you look at what happened in Florida, for instance, hopes that the Democrats could hold the Senate there and gained the governorship in Florida were dashed. And I think that's quite a blow, especially considering how important Florida is in the presidential map for 2020. And we saw that Trump still has an ability to energize his core base of supporters when he goes out there on the campaign trail. And we saw that in the Senate races that they were able to defend. I mean, you know, Trump went out there and he was able to get Republican rural voters and his base out to the polls. And it meant that there was no magical blue wave sweeping across the country. Certainly in the House, the Democrats did well. And of course, you can imagine how terrible for the Democrats it would have been if they hadn't been able to capture the House. But nonetheless, I think the Democrats were hoping to make even greater inroads into Republican territory than they did. And that has a bit of a cautionary tale for 2020, which will be an entirely different race. Sure. And of course, Jeff, the race for 2020 does sort of begin now. How do you respond to, in a way, James's pushback where he says, yeah, okay, they did well in some of the Rust Belt states, but Florida and Ohio, crucial. Florida's 
now looking like a red state, I suppose. And Ohio, well, as you say, they won the Senate, but not the governorship. Well, Florida was absolutely the worst part of the night for the Democrats. But even then, those races were incredibly close. I mean, they lost by half a percent in both the races, I mm-hmm. think, or maybe half a percent in the Senate race, one uh, percent in the, the governorship race. So they're still, Florida, as it has been for really most of my adult life, is still razor tight. I wouldn't say it's a red state. It's just a, it's a very, very close state. If you look at some of the Senate races that they lost, the poll suggested they might be competitive some of these races. But when you look at what happened in 2016, it gives you a sense of just how difficult some of these races were for the Democrats. So the Democrats actually won in West Virginia last night. And in 2016, Trump won West Virginia by 42%. In Missouri and Indiana, where they lost by 5 to 10%, they lost to Trump by 19 percentage points in 2016. So those are incredibly tough races for the Democrats to compete in. And maybe they're a little bit over-optimistic than the managing expectations because mm. those were really And there was really a lot of races. excitement which wasn't in the end quite fulfilled about this character Beto O'Rourke in Texas. But, but even he did actually a little bit better than most of the polls and the, the run-up to the race were saying. And I think James's point is, is very crucial about these urban areas. I mean, just to give you a list of some of the places where the, the Democrats picked up house seats, just because some of these cities, Charleston in South Carolina, Oklahoma City, Kansas City, Richmond, Virginia, Orange County in California, and Dallas. These are all places which really, you know, certainly since Ronald Reagan, those have been absolutely bedrock Republican suburban areas which the Republicans were able to win victories year after year, election after election. And the Democrats picked up very significant victories there. So Trump might be turning off American suburbia, essentially. Absolutely. He's turning off educated suburban voters, particularly women, many of whom in previous cycles would have voted Republican. Mm. Now, James, I mean, I mean, the Democrats, however, still have a big strategic choice to make about 2020. Oh, their voters do in the primaries. Do they go progressive? Do they go for a left-wing candidate like a Bernie Sanders or a younger version of that? Or do they say we need to nominate a moderate to try and win from the centre? How do you think they're going to assess that choice after tonight? Well, I think in a way there is kind of a third way. And we saw that third way in Beto O'Rourke in Texas. I mean, he is on the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, and he was able to channel a lot of energy among youth voters, minority voters, to kind of force a close and tight race in Texas, which is very difficult. He got people out to the polls. But at the same time, he was very careful not to take on Trump head on. He's sort of the new generation, but he was trying to thread the needle a little bit and not be seen as a sort of diehard Bernie Sanders type liberal, because I think he knows that that doesn't necessarily play well in the race for 2020. The question, of course, is, you know, will O'Rourke himself think about running for president now that he lost the Senate seat, so he's sort of unshackled from that. But I think there's a way for the Democrats to try and find a suitable candidate that can represent both sides. And I think that with Trump on the ballot this time on the other side, that there will be more more forces sort of uniting them than dividing them, provided that they find the right candidate that can bring the party together. I mean, that's not going to be easy because there are these two two souls. Mm. Um, a lot will depend on the attitude in, in Congress on Capitol Hill. I mean, Nancy Pelosi, assuming she'll be speaker, will have to decide whether to be a sort of deal maker with Trump on issues like prescription drugs and infrastructure and possibly trade, where there is some commonality or whether she's going to focus exclusively on the sort of accountability agenda. So investigations, subpoenas, holding the administration to task 
for sort of corruption, possibly impeachment, even though House Democrats insist that that's not their top priority. And that might give us a, a sense of where things are going, and certainly we'll have a clearer picture once the field of candidates begins to emerge. Okay. And Jeff, I mean, as for the Republicans, do you think it's safe to say now that they really are the party of Donald Trump now? I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, the people that did win these Senate races, and they did do very well in the Senate last night, those candidates did so by sticking very close to Trump. Trump came into their states and campaigned for them. I'm thinking about Indiana, I'm thinking about South Dakota, Missouri. You know, those Senate Republicans have seen that the way to do well, both in primaries and in these general elections in the Republican Party, is to stick very close to Trump. It is now very much the party of Trump. The question for the president is, he's adopted a political strategy, particularly in this election, but really since he became president, of just speaking entirely to the base, speaking to the up to 40% of the population who really do seem to like his message and like his style, and really not trying to do anything to speak beyond that base, to, to attract people more in the middle ground, even more moderate Republicans. Does he look at this election and say, I was vindicated because we won those Senate races, which is certainly what he's saying in public now? Or does he look at the popular vote in the House and so that he lost by 9% and think... If I don't do something different next couple of years, I, I could get beaten very badly in 2020. It's not even That's clear something. to me, though, that he's that strategic. I mean, he's such a visceral president, isn't he? He is, but in an odd way, he is not necessarily a very ideological figure. So he could quite easily decide to adopt very different policies if he wanted to, because it suited his particular interests. So he, he could decide that it might suit him in 2020 quite well to, say, pick up the infrastructure issue, which is something where he could find common ground with Democrats, could get something done. And there's a chance that he will see that that is the way for him to buttress himself for 2020. Or he might decide to completely play with the, the culture war rhetoric, the anti-immigration rhetoric, almost the demagoguery when has to say over the last couple of weeks and say if he just keeps stimulating his base that will keep him competitive in 2020 it's mm. not at all clear which way he's going to go my guess personally is that he'll go for the demagoguery but what do you think james i mean i guess the big question beyond the positioning of the parties and even beyond 2020 which kind of touches everything we've been discussing is is this increasingly bitter partisan united states that we've seen over the last couple of years with serious people even using words like civil war is that going to get worse? Or now that the Democrats have something to cling on to, might we get to a more inverted commas normal sort of American politics? What do you think? I think that chances are it's going to get worse. I mean, I think when faced with that dilemma about whether to strike deals with Trump or to investigate the administration, I think the Democrats will be naturally inclined to investigate also because Trump seems to be egging them on. I think Trump's tweets signal that it's going to be a time of very bitter, bitter political conflict, more so than we've seen up till now. I think one of the lessons from the suburbs for Trump is that even if he pursues policies that are designed to appeal to suburban voters, like the tax cuts, they don't necessarily translate into big votes because people are so turned off in those areas by some of his inflammatory rhetoric and by just the exasperation over the polarization of the country, that they are shifting away from him and the Republican Party. So that could give him some pause for thought. So, I mean, even if he did a big infrastructure bill, I'm not sure that that would really help him win back any voters. If some of the immigration rhetoric continues and keeps seeing those kinds of things, people in those areas prefer calm, quiet lives in a strong economy. And I'm not sure they're thrilled to see this kind of 
return of political violence that we've been looking at, the anti-Semitism and the tensions that are flaring up within families over politics. And so I think rationally he would do well to kind of tone that attitude down, but I'm not sure that he will be thinking that way. Okay. And finally then, Jeff, as James's answer implies, even though Trump wasn't on the ballot, this was a kind of election about Donald Trump. We're all, I suppose, part of his skill is that we're all so gripped by this show. But in two years' time, if you had to predict, do you think Trump will have been impeached or do you think he'll be re-elected or go down to defeat? I'm with the school of thought that because we were so surprised by his victory in 2016, or a lot of us were, that we tend to overestimate his political popularity, his political skills in a sense. To me, the kind of the, the most important thing to watch here is that in a booming economy with unemployment below 4%, this president who made himself the issue in this election, he lost the popular vote for the House by nine percentage points. He lost by historic margins. He still has a path to victory in 2020, as he saw with you know, victory in Florida, victory in the in Ohio and the governorship. So there is still a path to him to win the Electoral College. But my betting would be that he's more likely to lose than he is to win. Impeachment, okay. on the other hand, seems extremely unlikely and almost a mathematical possibility simply because of the, the way that Congress is, is laid out, the fact that the Republicans now have a very strong hold on the Senate. Okay. well, with that thought, thank you very much indeed to Jeff Dyer here in the studio in London, to James Politi in Washington, D.C. We'll leave it there for this week. Until next week, goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.